Chapter 6 of Cardinal Wolsey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Caveat. Cardinal Wolsey by Mandel Crichton. Chapter 6 The Imperial Alliance, 1521 to 1523. The failure of Wolsey's plans were due to the diplomacy of Gattinara and to the obstinacy of Charles V, who showed at the end of the negotiations at Calais an expected readiness to appreciate his obligations towards his dominions as a whole, by refusing to abandon Fontenabra, lest thereby he should irritate his Spanish subjects. It was this capacity for large consideration that gave Charles V his power in the future. His motives were hard to discover, but they always rested on a view of his entire obligations and were dictated by reasons known only to himself. Even Wolsey did not understand the Emperor's motives, which seemed to him entirely foolish. He allowed himself to take up a haughty position, which deeply offended Charles, who exclaimed angrily, This Cardinal will do everything his own way, and treat me as though I were a prisoner. Charles treasured up his resentment, of which Wolsey was entirely unconscious, and was determined not to allow so masterful a spirit to become more powerful. He soon had an opportunity of acting on this determination, as the unexpected death of Pope Leo X on the 1st of December naturally awakened hopes in Wolsey's breast. It was impossible that the foremost statesman in Europe should not have had the legitimate aspiration of reaching the highest office to which he could attain. But though Wolsey was ready, when the opportunity came to press his own claims with vigour, it cannot be said with fairness that his previous policy had been in any way directed to that end, or that he had swerved in the least from his own path to follow his chances for the papal office. Indeed, he had no reason for so doing, as Leo was only 46 years old when he died, and his death was entirely unforeseen. Moreover, we know that when the Spanish envoys offered Wolsey the Emperor's help towards the papacy in 1520, Wolsey refused the offer. Since then, Charles at Bruges had repeated the offer without being asked. Now that the vacancy had arisen, it was natural for Wolsey to attach some weight to this promise, and Henry expressed himself warmly in favour of Wolsey's election, and urged his imperial ally work by all means for that end. He sent to Rome his favourite secretary, Pace, to further it by pressing representations to the cardinals. It does not seem that Wolsey was very sanguine in his expectations of being elected. Leo X had died at a moment of great importance for Charles V. In fact, his death had been brought about by the imprudence which he showed in manifesting his delight at the success of the imperial arms against Milan, and his prospect of the overthrow of France. It was necessary for Charles that a Pope should be elected, who would hold to Leo's policy, and would continue the alliance with England. The man who held in his hand the threads of Leo X's numerous intrigues was his cousin, Cardinal Giulio Medimatici, and Wolsey admitted the advantages to be gained by his election. Wolsey at once declared that he submitted his candidature to the decision of Henry VIII and the Emperor. If they thought that he was the best person to promote their interests, he would not shrink from the labour, but he agreed that if his candidature were not likely to be acceptable to the cardinals, the two monarchs should unite in favour of Cardinal Medici. Charles's ambassador wrote to him that it would be well to act carefully, as Wolsey was watching to see how much faith he could put in the emperor's protestations of goodwill. So Charles was prepared and acted with ambiguous caution. He put off communicating with Henry as long as he could. He regretted that he was in the Netherlands instead of Germany, whence he could have made his influence felt in Rome he secretly ordered his ambassador in Rome to press for the election of Cardinal Medici. 
but gave him no definite instructions about anyone else. Finally, he wrote a warm letter in favour of Wolsey, which he either never sent at all or sent too late to be of any use, but which served as an enclosure to satisfy Henry VIII. Wolsey was not deceived by this and knew how papal elections might be influenced. He told the Spanish ambassador that, if his master were in earnest, he should order his troops to advance against Rome and should command the cardinals to elect his nominee. He offered to provide a 100,000 ducats to cover the expenses of such an action. When it came to the point, Wolsey was a very practical politician and was under no illusions about the frail pretenses of free choice which surrounded a papal election. He treated it as a matter to be settled by pressure from outside, according to the will of the strongest. There is something revoltingly cynical in this proposal. No doubt many men thought like Wolsey, but no one else would have had the boldness to speak out. Wolsey's outspokenness was to no avail at this time, but it bore fruits afterwards. He taught Henry VIII to conceive the possibility of a short way of dealing with refractory popes. He confirmed his willing pupil in the belief that all things might be achieved by the resolute will of one who rises above prejudice and faces the world as it is. When he fell, he must have recognised that it was himself who had trained the arm which smote him. In spite of Wolsey's advice, Charles did not allow Spanish influence to be unduly felt in the proceedings of the conclave. Rarely have the cardinals been more undecided, and when they went into conclave on the 27th of December, it was said that every one of them was a candidate for the papacy. The first point was to exclude Cardinal Medici, and it could be plausibly argued that it was dangerous to elect two successive popes from the same family. Medici's opponents succeeded in making this election impossible, but could not agree on a candidate of their own, while Medici tried to bring about the election of someone who might be favourable to the emperor. At last, in weariness, the cardinals turned their thoughts to someone who was not present. Wolsey was proposed and received seven votes but Medici was waiting his time and put forward Cardinal Adrian of Utrecht, who had been Charles's tutor and was then governing Spain in his master's name. Both parties agreed on him, chiefly because he was personally unknown to any of the cardinals, had given no offence and was well advanced in years, and was reckoned to be of a quiet disposition so that everyone had hopes of guiding his counsels. It was clear that the imperialists were strongest in the conclave, and of all the imperial candidates, Adrian was the least offensive to the French. The one thing is quite clear that Charles V had not the least intention of helping Wolsey. Wolsey probably knew this well enough and was not disappointed. He bore the emperor no ill will for his lukewarmness. Indeed, he had no ground for expecting anything else. Wolsey's aim was not the same as that of Charles, and Charles had sufficient opportunity to discover the difference between them. Probably Wolsey saw that the alliance between England and the emperor would not be of long duration, as there was no real identity of interests. Henry VIII was dazzled for a moment with the prospect of asserting the English claims on France. He was glad to find himself at one with his queen, who was overjoyed at the prospect of a family alliance with her own beloved land of Spain. The English nobles rejoiced at an opportunity to display their prowess, and hoped in time of war to recover the influence and position which they had deprived of by an upstart priest. The sentiment of hostility to France was still strong among the English people, and the allurements of a spirited foreign policy were many. But, as a matter of fact, England was ill-prepared for war, and though the people might throw up their caps at first, they were not long consent to pay for a war which brought them no profit. And the profits were not likely to be great, for Charles had no wish to see England's importance increased. He desired only English help to achieve his own purposes, and was no more trustworthy as an ally than his grandfather, Ferdinand.
However, war had been agreed upon, and all that Wolsey could do was to try and put off its declaration until he had secured its sufficient assurance that English money was not to be spent to no purpose. Charles V, who was in sore straits for money, asked for a loan from England, to which Wolsey answered that England could not declare war till the loan was repaid. He insisted that no declaration of war should be made till the Emperor had fulfilled his promise to pay a visit to England, a promise which Charles's want of money rendered him unable for some time to keep. But, however much Wolsey might try to put off the declaration of war, it was inevitable. Francis could not be expected, for all Wolsey's fine promises, to continue his payments for Tournai to so doubtful an ally as Henry, nor could he resist from crippling England as far as he could. The Duke of Albany went back to Scotland, and in the beginning of May, Francis ordered the seizure of goods lying at Bordeaux for shipment to England. This led to the retaliation on the part of England, and war was declared against France on the 28th of May, 1522. This coincided with the visit of Charles V to London, where he was magnificently entertained for a month, while the Treaty of Alliance was being finally brought into shape by Wolsey and Gattinara. Wolsey contented himself with providing that the alliance did not go any further than had been agreed at Bruges, and that English interest would be secured by an undertaking from Charles that he would pay the loss which Henry VIII sustained by with the withdrawal of the instalments for Tournai. When the treaty was signed, it was Wolsey who, as papal legate, submitted both princes to ecclesiastical censures in case of a breach of its provisions. Moreover, Charles granted Wolsey a pension of 9,000 crowns, in compensation for his loss from Tournai, and renewed his empty promise of raising him to the papacy. It is one thing to declare war and another to carry it out with good effect. England, in spite of all the delays which Wolsey had contrived to interpose, was still unprepared. It was late in the autumn before forces could be put in the field, and the troops of Charles V were too few for a joint undertaking of any importance. The Allies contented themselves with invading Picardy, where they committed useless atrocities, burning houses, devastating the country, and working all sorts of mischief that they could. They did not advance into the centre of France, and no army met them in the field. In the middle of October, they retired ingloriously. It is hard to discover the purpose of such an expedition. The damage done was not enough to weaken France materially, and such a display of barbarity was ill-suited to win the French people to favour Henry VIII's claim to be their rightful lord. If Francis I had been unpopular before, he was now raised to the position of a national leader whose help was necessary for the protection of his subjects. The futile result of this expedition caused mutual recriminations between the new allies. The imperialists complained that the English had come too late. The English answered they had not been properly supported. There were no signs of mutual confidence, and the two ministers, Wolsey and Gattinara, were avowed enemies, and did not conceal their hostility. The alliance with the Emperor did not show signs of prospering from the beginning. The proceedings of the Earl of Surrey in the direction of the campaign were not Wolsey's concern. He was employed near a home in keeping a watchful eye on Scotland, which threatened to be a hindrance to Henry VIII's great undertakings abroad. The return of the Duke of Albany in December 1521 was a direct threat of war. Albany was nominally regent, but had found his office troublesome and had preferred to spend the last five years in the gaieties of the French court rather than among the rugged nobles of Scotland. They were years when France was at peace with England and had little interest in the Scottish affairs, so Queen Margaret might quarrel with her husband at leisure, while the Scottish lords distributed themselves between the two parties as suited them best. But when war between France and England was approaching, 
the Duke of Albany was sent back by Francis I to his post as agent for France in Scottish affairs. Queen Margaret welcomed him with joy, hoping that he would further her plan of gaining a divorce from the Earl of Angus. Before this union of forces, the English party in Scotland was powerless. It was in vain that Henry VIII tried by menaces to influence either his sister or the Scottish lords. As soon as the English forces sailed for France, Albany prepared to invade England. It was lucky for Henry VIII that he was well served on the borders by Lord Dacre of Naworth, who managed to show the Scots the measure of Albany's incapacity. Dacre began negotiations with Albany to save time, and when in September the Scottish forces passed the border, Albany was willing to make a truce. As a matter of fact, England was totally unprepared to repel an invasion, and Albany might have dictated his own terms. But Dacre, in Carlisle, which he could not defend, maintained his courage and showed no signs of fear. He managed to blind Albany to the real state of affairs, and kept him from approaching the crumbling walls of Carlisle. He advanced to the debatable land to meet him, and with a high voice demanded the reason of his coming and the parley thus begun ended in the conclusion of a month's truce. Wolsey was overjoyed at this result, and found it necessary to intercede with the king for Dacre's pardon, as he had had no authority to make terms with the enemy, and Dacre was not only forgiven, but thanked. This futile end to an expedition from which 80,000 soldiers had been raised ruined Albany's influence, and he again retired to France at the end of October. Wolsey at once saw the risk which England had run. A successful invasion on the part of the Scots would have been a severe blow to England's military reputation and Wolsey determined to be secure on the Scottish side for the future. The Earl of Surrey, on his return from this expedition in France, was put in charge of the defences of the border, and everything was done to humour Queen Margaret and convince her that she had more to gain from the favour of her brother than from the help of the Duke of Albany. Moreover, Wolsey, already convinced of the uselessness of the war against France, was still ready to gain from it all that he could, and strove to use the threat of danger from Scotland as a means of withdrawing from the war and gaining a signal triumph. Francis I, unable to defend himself, tried to separate his enemies and turned to Charles V with offers of a truce. When this was refused, he repeated his proposals to England, and Wolsey saw his opportunity. He represented to Charles that so long as England was menaced by Scotland, she could send little effective help abroad. If Scotland were crushed, she would be free again. He suggested that the Emperor had little to win by his military enterprises, undertaken with such slight preparation as the last campaign, would he not make a truce for a year, not comprehending the realm of Scotland? The suggestion was almost too palpable. Gattinara answered that Henry wished to use his forces for his private advantage, and neglected the common interest of the alliance. Again, bitter complaints were made of Wolsey's lukewarmness. Again, the two allies jealously watched each other, lest each should gain an advantage by making a separate alliance with France and while they were thus engaged, the common enemy of Christendom was advancing, and Rhodes fell before the Turkish arms. It was in vain that Adrian VI lamented and wept. In vain he implored for succours. Fair promises alone were given him. Europe was much too intent on the duel between Francis and Charles to think seriously of anything else. The entreaties of the Pope were only regarded by all parties as a good means of enabling them to throw a decent veil over any measure which their own interests might prompt. They might declare that it was taken for the sake of the Holy War. They might claim that they had acted from a desire to fulfil the Pope's behest. So things stood in the beginning of 1523, when an unexpected event revived the military spirit of Henry VIII, and brought the two half-hearted allies once more closely together 
by the prospect which it afforded by striking a deadly blow at France. The chief of the nobles of France, the sole survivor of the great feudatories, the constable of Bourbon, was most unwisely affronted by Francis I at a time when he needed to rally his subjects around him. Not only was Bourbon affronted, but also a lawsuit was instituted against him, which threatened to deprive him of the greater part of his possessions. Bourbon, who could bring into the field 6,000 men, did not find his patriotism strong enough to endure this wrong. He opened up secret negotiations with Charles to disclose the matter to Henry. Henry's ambition was at once fired. He saw Francis I hopelessly weakened by a defection of the chief nobles, incapable of withstanding an attack from the interior of his land, so that the English troops might conquer the old provinces which England still claimed, and victory might place upon his head the crown of France. Wolsey was not so misled by this fantastic prospect, but as the campaign was imminent, took all the precautions he could that it should be as little costly as possible to England, and that Charles should bear his full share of the expense. He demanded, moreover, that Bourbon should acknowledge Henry VIII as the rightful king of France, a demand which was by no means acceptable to Charles. He sent an envoy of his own to confer with Bourbon, but his envoy was delayed on the way so that the agreement was framed in the imperial interests alone, and the demands of Henry were little heeded. The agreement was that Bourbon should receive the hand of one of the emperor's sisters and should receive a subsidy of 200,000 crowns, to be paid equally by Henry and Charles. The question of the recognition of Henry as rightful king of France was to be left to the decision of the emperor. The plan of the campaign was quickly settled. Charles, with 20,000 men, was to advance into Guillon. Henry, with 15,000 English, supported by 6,000 Netherlanders, was to advance through Picardy. 10,000 Germans were to advance through Burgundy, was to head a body of disaffected nobles of France. It was an excellent plan, on paper. And indeed, the position of France seemed hopeless enough. Francis I had squandered his people's money and was exceedingly unpopular. Wolsey's diplomacy had helped to win over the Swiss to the Imperial Alliance, and the indefatigable Secretary Pace had been sent to Venice to detach the Republic from its connection with France. It was believed that Wolsey was jealous of Pace's influence with Henry VIII and contrived to keep him employed on embassies which removed him from the court. At all events, he certainly kept him busily employed till his health gave way under the excessive pressure. To lend greater weight to Pace's arguments, Wolsey descended to an act of overbearing influence. Some Venetian galleys trading with Flanders put in at Plymouth during a storm, and they were laid under an embargo and were detained on many flimsy pretexts. It was in vain that the Venetian ambassador remonstrated. Wolsey always had a plausible answer. Probably he was to show Venice that its trading interests required the friendship of England. At all events, the galleys were not released till Venice was on the point of joining the Imperial Alliance. Even then, Wolsey had the meanness to carry off a couple of guns from each vessel, and Venice had to make a present of them to the English king with as much grace as the circumstances allowed. This little incident certainly shows Wolsey's conduct at its worst, and confirms the impression of his contemporaries that he had, to some degree, the insolence of an upstart and sometimes overrode the weak, in a way to leave behind a bitter feeling of resentment. However, Venice joined the Emperor and Pope Adrian VI, who had pursued hitherto a policy of pacification, was at last overborne by the pressure of England, and the Emperor said he entered into a defensive league against France. Thus France was entirely isolated. Distrusted at home and unbefriended abroad, she seemed to be a prey to her enemies. And Henry's hopes rose so high that he gleefully looked forward to being recognised as governor of France, and that they should by this means make a way for him as King Richard did for his father.
Wiser men shook their heads at the king's infatuation. I pray God, wrote more to Wolsey, if it be good for his grace and for his realm, then it may prove so. Else in the stead thereof, I pray God send his grace an honourable and profitable peace. The spirit that breathes through this prayer is not a martial spirit, and no doubt More's feelings represented those of Wolsey, who, though carried away by the king's military zeal, had little hopes of any great success, and such hopes as he had were rapidly destroyed. The campaign did not begin until the end of September. The contingent from the Netherlands was late in appearing, and was ill-supplied with food. Till the last moment, Wolsey urged, as the first object of the campaign, the siege of Boulogne, which, if successful, would have given England a second stronghold on the French coast. But Wolsey was overruled, and an expedition into the interior of France was preferred. It was a repetition of the raid, made in the last year, and was equally futile. The army advanced to Montdidier, and expected tidings of its confederate, but nothing was to be heard of Bourbon. His landsknecht began to devastate France, and then disbanded. The army of Charles V contented itself with taking Fontabra, and did not cooperate with English forces. After the capture of Montdidier, the troops who were attacked by sickness had difficulty in finding provisions, and withdrew to the coast, and the Duke of Suffolk brought back his costly army without having obtained anything of service to England. This expedition, which was to do so much, was a total failure. There was positively nothing to be shown in return for all the money spent. Again, the wisdom of Wolsey's policy was justified. He was right in thinking that England had neither troops nor generals who were sufficient for an expedition on the continent. But there was nothing tangible to be gained. So long as England was a neutral and mediating power, she could pursue her own interests. But her threats were more efficacious than her performances. She could not conquer unaided and her allies had no intention of allowing her to win more than empty glory. Even this had been denied in the last campaigns. England had incurred debts which her people could ill afford to pay, and had only lowered her reputation by a display of military incompetence. Moreover, her expedition against France involved her in the usual difficulties on the side of Scotland. Again there was a devastating war along the border. Again the Duke of Albany was sent from France and raised an army for the invasion of England. But this time... Wolsey had taken precautions, and the Earl of Surrey was ready to march against him. When in November Albany crossed the Tweed and besieged the castle of Wark, Surrey took the field, and again Albany showed his incapacity as a leader. He retired before Surrey's advance, and wished to retire to France, but was prevented by the Scottish lords. Again the border raids went on with their merciless slaughter and plunder, amidst which was developed the sternness and severity which still marked the character of the Norman folk. Still, though the Scots might be defeated in the field, their defeat and suffering only served to strengthen the spirit of national independence. The subjugation of Scotland to England was hindered, not helped, by the alliance with the Emperor, which only drew Scotland nearer to France and kept alive the old feeling of hostility. It was hard to see what England had gained from the imperial alliance, and events soon proved that Charles V had pursued his own interests without much thought of the wishes of Henry VIII. On the 14th of September died Pope Adrian VI, a weary and disappointed man. Again there was a prospect of Wolsey's election to the papacy. Again it might be seen how much Charles V would do for his English ally. Wolsey had little hope of his good offices and was his own negotiator in the matter. He was not sanguine about his prospects of success, as he knew that Cardinal Medici was powerful in Rome. And the disasters of the pontificate of Adrian VI led the cardinals to wish for a return to the old policy of Leo X 
for which Medici held the threads. So two letters were sent to the English representatives in Rome, one on behalf of Wolsey, the other on behalf of Medici. If things were going for Medici, Wolsey was not to be pressed. Only in the matter of a disagreement was Wolsey to be put forward, and then no effort was to be spared. Money was of no object, as Henry would make good any promises made on his behalf to secure Wolsey's election. The conclave was protected. It sat from the 1st of October to the 17th of November, and there was ample opportunity for Charles to have made his influence felt in Wolsey's behalf. He professed to Henry that he was doing so. He wrote a letter recommending Wolsey to his envoy in Rome, and then gave orders that the courier who carried the letter should be detained on the way. Really, his influence was being used for Medici, and though a strong party in the conclave opposed Medici's election, it does not appear that Wolsey was ever put forward as a competitor. The cardinals would have heard nothing of a foreigner, and the stubbornness of Medici's party was at length rewarded by his election. There is no trace that Wolsey was keenly disappointed at this result. In announcing it to Henry VIII, he wrote, For my part, as I take God to record, I am more joyous thereof than if it had been fortune upon my person, knowing his excellent qualities most meet for the same, and how great and sure a friend your grace and the emperor be like to have of him, I so good a father. Few popes come to their office amid greater expectations, and few more entirely disappoint them than did Guilio de Medici, Clement VII, whose election Charles, Henry and Wolsey united in greeting with joy, suffered in a brief space entire humiliation at the hands of Charles, caused the downfall of Wolsey and drove Henry to sever their bond between the English Church and the Holy See. It is impossible not to think how different would have been the course of events if Wolsey had presided over the destinies of the Church. End of chapter 6